Welcome to episode 20 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Has it really been that long? We were so young and idealistic back then in September of last year. I've held off until now from going off on one on this podcast about the illegal student loan order that President Biden issued last year and that has been tied up since in the courts. But this week brought with it oral arguments on that matter in the United States Supreme Court. And I've thus been pushed back into writing about it. And once I start writing about it, I can think of little else. So that's what this podcast is going to be about too. I believe this is one of the most important political and jurisprudential issues of our time. It is, as it stands, a constitutional crisis that, if left unchecked, will end up doing extraordinary damage to the American legal order and to our political system and that will encourage every administration that follows this one to find similar ways of getting around the core provision within our settlement, which is the separation of powers. As Antonin Scalia famously noted, quote, Every tin horn dictator in the world today has a Bill of Rights. It isn't the Bill of Rights that produces freedom. It's the structure of government that prevents anybody from seizing all the power. End quote. President Biden is, with this order, attempting to seize, if not all, at least far too much of that power. And if he's allowed to get away with it, terrible consequences will flow. Now, before we get to that, I want to start by freely acknowledging, openly acknowledging, that its legality aside, I strongly oppose Biden's student loan move politically. If Congress wrote off $400 billion or more in student loans, I would be livid. I wouldn't argue that that was illegal, because it wouldn't be. But I'd be livid nevertheless. There is, in my estimation, no good reason whatsoever for American taxpayers to pay off some or all of the debt that certain people have incurred in the process of seeking and then using a consumer product. It's corrosive, it's divisive, it's lunacy. It's also deeply dishonest. Sometimes the press calls what Biden is trying to do forgiveness, loan forgiveness. But it's not loan forgiveness. 
It's loan transference. The money in question has already been spent. It can't be forgiven because it's already been handed out and handed over. If the debts that resulted are not collected from those who incurred them, then other people, that is people who didn't spend the money, will have to fill the gap. So what Joe Biden is trying to do here is take money from the people who did not borrow money to pay for a consumer product, in this case, higher education, and give it to people who did borrow money and pay for and receive and benefit from that consumer product. Why? There's no good civic reason to do that. It's true that some of the people who borrowed money to pay for an education that they received would like to be given a bunch of free money by people who did not do that. Just as it's true that I, who borrowed money to pay for my house, would like to be given a bunch of free money by people who do not get to live in my house. That would be lovely. But that is, or at least it ought to be, totally irrelevant to the US government. And nor is there anything particularly sympathetic or important about college graduates. College graduates were not particularly inconvenienced by COVID. In fact, they were helped by the federal government's decision to stop collecting loan payments, which two years plus later still obtains. And as of today, those college graduates have better job prospects, better earning prospects, and better health outcomes than people who didn't go to college. I have asked over and over again, why on earth, if the federal government wants for some reason to get further and further into debt, it's looking here. If personal debt is an issue, why not pay off the loans incurred by plumbers or welders or landscapers? And I think the answer is as obvious as it is gross that our elite class does not think that those people are as important as college graduates, whose credentials, day by day, week by week, month by month, become ever more fetishized in our culture. All of the arguments would work in the same way. I'd have more money if I didn't have to pay off these loans is true of the electrician paying off the F-150 he uses for work. It would be good for the economy if I didn't owe so much of my paycheck to the repayment of my debts. Is true of the carpenter who rents a shop. There's nothing unique about college students. And if it were not true that college students were doing well, if college is such a bad deal that students really have been screwed by false expectations, then Biden ought to be taking completely different action. He ought to be lambasting America's growing credentialism. He ought to be demanding that colleges reduce their prices, that they destroy courses that aren't economically viable, that people who are unlikely to benefit from their time at university go and do something else. 
The action he's taking is not reform. It's an arbitrary one-time lightning strike that, if anything, will increase costs by reassuring college administrators that the federal government is likely to step in if it considers that student debt has become too great. And by signaling to future students that they needn't worry too much about racking up big bills because at some point in the future there will be another amnesty. Biden can't have this both ways. If college is a wonderful place that helps those who attend, then there's no excuse for his demand that those who don't go, people who on average are less well-off, must pay the bills of those who do. And if college is a scam, well, then he must take action to reduce demand, lower prices, and tailor it to the real world. But anyway, that is a policy question. It's why I became interested in this issue in the first place. But it's not why I think it's illegal. I think it's illegal because everyone thinks it's illegal. And quite obviously so. I will happily repeat here my insistence that nobody who was involved in, or who is defending this, believes in their heart that Joe Biden is legally permitted to do it. In 2021, the Department of Education found that, quote, the secretary does not have statutory authority to provide blanket or mass cancellation, compromise, discharge, or forgiveness of student loan principal balances, and or to materially modify the repayment amount or terms thereof, whether due to the COVID-19 pandemic or for any other reason. And a few months later, on television, Nancy Pelosi explained to the press that, quote, Not everybody realizes that, but the president can only postpone, delay, but not forgive student loans. It would take an act of Congress, Pelosi said, not an executive order to cancel student loan debt. Now, nothing has changed since then. And nobody really believes otherwise. And when I say nobody, I include the president in that. The memo that the White House put out defending its position on this was an embarrassment for the ages. Go read it and you'll see what I mean. It is full of ellipses and redefinitions and sophistry and nervous insinuations that if you squint just right under a full moon, you might be able to find some justification for the move. And we all know what happened here. Having made a promise during the 2020 election that he would cancel some student loans, a promise that Biden's defenders still invoke, and in a way that rather gives away the game, If this was a campaign promise, then how can it be an emergency measure? Biden asked his legal team to do a control F on the federal statute books and to find any law containing a certain set of words that could be plausibly twisted into a justification for unilateral action. During the search that ensued, 
Biden's team found the HEROES Act of 2003, and they thought, that'll do. So they announced it. Not, of course, via the Administrative Procedure Act or via any channel so gauche as that, but via a press release, just as the founders intended. Now, for Biden's case to work here, he needs three elements to be satisfied. First, he needs the plain language of the 2003 HEROES Act, which is a post-9-11 law that was designed to ensure that people who volunteer for military service in national emergencies are not made financially poorer for their efforts. He needs the plain language of that act to justify the mass cancellation of student loans. And it doesn't. The 2003 HEROES Act gives the Secretary of Education the power to, quote, waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision applicable to the student financial assistance programs, bear in mind, this is before the federal takeover of student loans, to ensure that, quote, recipients of student financial assistance who are affected individuals are not placed in a worse position financially in relation to that financial assistance because of their status as affected individuals. Individuals. Now, in the statute, affected individuals is defined as people who A are serving on active duty during a war or other military operation or national emergency. B, performing qualifying National Guard duty during a war or other military operation or national emergency. C, resides or is employed in an area that is declared a disaster area in connection with a national emergency. Or D, suffered direct economic hardship as a direct result of a war or other military operation or national emergency. The Biden administration is claiming that Provision D covers college students and thereby allows him to cancel up to $20,000 of their debt. This in and of itself is ridiculous. This in and of itself is enough to strike down the order. As Ilya Soman noted this week over at Reason, even the hardest-nosed textualist must read words in their correct context. Soman writes, Most textualists hold that statutory language should be interpreted in accordance with its ordinary meaning. They also recognize that ordinary meaning varies based on context. The same words and phrases might have different meanings depending on the situation. So, how does that apply here? Well, as Soman goes on to note, in the loan forgiveness case, the Biden administration relies on a vague provision of the HEROES Act that allows the executive branch to waive or modify regulations governing federal student loans to justify cancellation of over $400 billion in student loan debt. Even if semantics divorced from context suggests that mass cancellation qualifies as a type of waiver or modification, contextual ordinary meaning indicates that such an enormous delegation of power requires greater precision. It's ridiculous. And it's especially ridiculous 
when one considers that for this terrible argument even to become operative, Biden needs two more conditions to be met. He needs the United States to be in the midst of an emergency, which, by his own admission, he said last year that the pandemic was over, it is not. And in addition, he needs college students en masse to be, quote, in a worse position financially in relation to that financial assistance, end quote. Which they're not. And which they certainly were not by the time that Biden got around to handing down the order, 18 months after COVID had begun, by which point college students had gone a year and a half without paying anything whatsoever toward their student loans. Really, there is only one way that Biden will get away with his attempt here. And that is if he can ensure that the substance of this case is never heard. Which, of course, is why he's so desperate to ensure that it's not. Biden knows that nobody believes him. He knows that between 2003 and 2021, nobody in America, no one, argued that the 2003 HEROES Act, which was designed, as its authors confirmed, in an amicus brief filed with the Supreme Court, to, quote, ensure that service members would not face administrative difficulties related to their post-secondary education while serving in defense of our nation, but stopped short of offering loan forgiveness, actually represented a broad grant of authority to the president to do whatever he wanted with student loans. He knows no one argued that. He knows that every court that has looked at the merits, be it a U.S. District Judge in Texas or the Fifth Circuit or the Eighth Circuit has concluded that the order was unlawful or that it was unlikely to prevail when examined further. And this is why last year, Biden did everything he could to avoid having a judge look over his work. Twice in 2022, the Biden administration altered its order on the fly. Twice. Once, that change was made by the White House press secretary at the podium. And on the other occasion, it was made via an edit to a website. The purpose being to try to remove the complaint that was being made by a potential plaintiff so that it couldn't make it into court. Still, the White House is hoping that the merits of the case are never reached. This week... The Washington Post's editorial board argued that Biden's order was expensive and ill-targeted, that it was egregious, that Biden had failed to get congressional approval for the $400 billion initiative, that it was a regressive and expensive mistake, that it was reliant on a questionable reading of the two-decade-old law, that's the 2003 Heroes Act. The Post conceded that it's unlikely that those who wrote it were envisioning a future president issuing audacious across-the-board student loan relief, as opposed to, say, pausing loan payments while soldiers are deployed in a foreign war or helping hurricane survivors rebuild. And the Post concluded that the straightforward reading of the law's purpose is that it permits aid targeted at those who would struggle to repay their loans as a direct result of a serious emergency. 
But then the Post wrote that the Supreme Court can't do anything because in their view, here, not usually, the administration's opponents, which include several states and two individuals, lack standing. That is a direct concrete stake in the outcome to challenge the law. Now look, I don't agree with that. But I will accept that if Biden's order is upheld, it will be on those grounds and those grounds alone. Or to put it another way, if Biden's order is upheld, it will be because he has found a way to spend hundreds of billions of dollars, up to 4% of GDP, without congressional approval while completely evading judicial review. Which, frankly, should terrify you. I don't care whether you agree with me on the political desirability of student loan transfers. Nothing good can come from an unmoored Article 2 branch that has worked out how to act without Congress and not get caught. Right there, that would represent the end of the Constitution's separation of powers. There is a reason that the court has started ruling that the executive branch is not permitted to find in, quote, a long extant statute an unheralded power and, quote, to adopt a regulatory program that Congress had conspicuously and repeatedly declined to enact itself. And that reason is that if the executive branch is allowed to do that, then the Article 1 promise that all legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States is dead. I am not being hyperbolic when I say that if Biden gets away with this, it will portend dark things for the United States. If Biden gets away with this, we will have ratified a massive hole in the US Constitution and encourage the Article 2 branch to start working out how to drive through it. Anything other than a loss, anything, will serve as a signal to this White House, and to the next White House, and to the White House after that, that its role is to search for chances to make enormously illegal decisions without Congress in the hope that they can get away with them on the grounds that nobody has the standing to sue. And when that happens, we will start seeing some pretty brutal politics. Politics that will make our current hardball look like a dainty walk in the park. My guest today is Noah Rothman, who is actually my newest colleague. How long have you been at National Review now, Noah? Since Monday? Since Monday the 20th. Monday the 20th. Well, it feels like you've been here longer. Very gracious of you. I think. Well, yeah, right? That could go either way. Right, exactly. God, it feels like you've been here a long time. (laughs) Anyhow, you are a foreign policy guy. And I think it's fair to say a hawk. Is that how you would describe yourself? 
yes, um, a proponent of an ex- extroverted American foreign policy. All right, so I wanted to talk about Ukraine because while I am not anti-Hawk, I don't take the Michael Brendan Doherty view, I am a little bit skeptical for a number of reasons of individualized conflicts and aids to conflict. So it's been one year since Ukraine was invaded by Russia. The United States is spending quite a lot of money helping Ukraine. There are some people, many of whom do not favor Vladimir Putin, many of whom do not question that Ukraine is morally in the right, who are beginning to complain about the price tag. Why are they wrong? They're not wrong. I just find the green eyeshades argument around this particular imperative um, not especially compelling for a variety of reasons. First, if you want to talk about spending, obviously, non-discretionary obligations or interest in our entitlements are the biggest pool of money. If you want to talk about non-discretionary spending, sure, defense can come up. But we, a smart, hawkish approach to performing the bloated defense budget would be to go after procurements. And John McCain, no squish himself, spent the last 15 years of his life advocating for reforms along these lines. What are procurements? Um, the, uh, the investment in and securing platforms, for example. Big, expensive platforms, some of which have kind of underperformed, like the F-22, for example, and others. Um, a navy, the la- literal navy uh, ship. These uh, are money drains, and they're very real and very uh, compelling. But this particular initiative, a contingency, which is precisely what the Pentagon is designed to address, and indeed is one of the primary constitutional responsibilities of the federal government, uh, is to address direct threats to our national interests. All right, well, let me stop you there, because skeptics would say this is not a direct threat to our national interest. It is not a direct threat to our national security. It not only has not come close to the United States, it hasn't even come close to Western Europe. And they would say that what you describe as procurement, which is airplanes and boats, are much more important because we use those or could use those to defend ourselves. And we should, and we'll continue to. And indeed, uh, our support of this uh, contingency in Europe is advancing that interest rather significantly. First of all, this is a rounding error in our budget, $100 billion dollars. Uh, is about 5% of the annual defense budget. Second, uh, a lot of this money that we're sending, quote-unquote, to Ukraine ends up in Alabama, where the defense uh, industry uh, ends up replenishing our ordnance stockpiles and our platforms. And and indeed, when it comes to the M1s, for example, they're making them from scratch and sending them abroad. Uh, All this stuff needs to be modernized and updated anyway. Um, So we're sending them old weapons, and we're... Or new, new ones, or making new ones. Okay. And replenishing our stockpiles, uh, some of which are in badly in need of replenishing. Um, and yes, the ordinance, I've been frustrated by the degree to which the industry that resupplies our ordinance has been able to meet this demand. In fact, a lot of lawmakers are. Um, but addressing that deficiency now, and indeed recognizing that deficiency now, spares us and untold horrors down the line in the event that the contingency involved us directly. And how could that happen? Well, for example, we were attacked 
surprise attack, for example, and had to uh, utilize a lot of the ordnance that we're sending both from our stockpiles in places like Israel and South Korea. Um, we're tapping into a lot of veins now, and we're not the only ones um, by far. But nevertheless, we're tapping into that in order to replenish our stockpiles. And if we discovered that in the event of an attack, it would be a much more serious situation. True, but that's a byproduct of what we're doing in Ukraine, right? That's a byproduct you think is salutary, but we did not need the invasion of Ukraine to address and evaluate our stockpiles of weapons, surely? Well, it certainly hadn't happened prior. So... Let's stipulate then that a pleasant byproduct of the terribly unpleasant situation in Ukraine is that we were forced to look through our stockpiles of weapons and send them over and then recreate them so that we had as many as we had when the conflict started. That's not a direct defense of an American interest in Ukraine. That's a happy accident. What is the direct American interest in Ukraine? Well, if you're talking in purely material terms, I would say that the United States has pursued roughly four grand strategic objectives across all administrations since the end of the Second World War, uh, three of which are directly imperiled by the conflict in Europe. Um, the first of them, and this is empirical, you can simply observe the conduct of the United States over the last 75 years, um, has been to prevent major shooting wars between great powers and to ensure that little shooting wars between great powers do not erupt into something bigger. The second is to preserve the Second World War II post-war geopolitical order, the American-led geopolitical order. The third is to integrate non-aligned states into U.S.-backed institutions and open markets, and preventing the proliferation of nuclear weapons is the fourth, which is just not really imperiled by this particular conflict. But three out of four ain't bad. Um, I would put in a good word, by the way, and this is something that skeptics of this conflict are allergic to, but it is nonetheless an exquisitely powerful argument to note the degree to which the moral urgency, while uncompelling for the American, from the perspective of a hard-nosed American material interest type, um, is the more powerful story. There's hardly a more, it's hard to imagine a more just set of circumstances under which uh, Ukraine is, is defending itself against an act of, of aggression, of rape, of, of execution, the disintegration of families, and the kind of conduct of war crimes, according to the United States government. Powerful stories move armies. And it would be a failure, I think, of, of imagination to, to sacrifice that. And I think it's evidenced in part by the degree to which people who don't support this war, for example, most recently Senator Mike Lee, who was taken in by this flawed, poorly edited video of, of, um, of, of Vladimir Zelensky saying, well, Americans will have to fight on Ukrainian soil if, uh, if they don't support this war, which is not what he said. He said that they would have to fight in NATO's defense if, if we didn't do the fighting in Ukraine because Russia would turn to NATO. They so know they right need a powerful that? story. Powerful stories are important. And they okay, don't have so one. assume you're talking to somebody who just doesn't care at all about any of that and is entirely amoral. This isn't my position, mm -hmm. but I've had conversations with people about this and they will say to me, frankly, I just don't care about Ukraine. I've had and those conversations as well. Right. And the next question is, why should I? What will happen if we leave? Yeah, I think Vladimir Zelensky is not incorrect. Um, Moscow's, Moscow has grand strategic objectives, too. And since the fall of the Soviet Union, one of them has been to fracture the NATO alliance. And the, it would do that by testing the commitment of the Western members to the defense of the frontier. 
uh, part of the one of the examples of this from 2007 on 2007 2014 uh, there have been some very dangerous incidents in Estonia uh, a cyber attack a national cyber attack that crippled the country stopped the ability to do any banking for some time and a 2014 incursion over the border in which Russian forces used radar jamming equipment uh, incendiary devices and captured a border guard and brought him back to to uh, Russia to be tried uh, very serious and international incidents now, Nobody moved. Nobody made any major sudden movements in those. But that just emboldened Moscow, I think, to to pursue a variety of other more destabilizing actions in Syria and in Ukraine. Um, so the degree to which you can establish for Russia a really impenetrable and inviolable border, and on the, the on the cheap, frankly, degrade its capacity to field a conventional army and thus prevent the West's pivot to Asia by forcing it to commit to Europe because you have that menace on its frontier um, is a good thing. It frees our hand. It gives us a little bit of room to maneuver, at least for another decade. Uh, that's certainly in the interest of anybody who thinks that we do have strategic threats abroad. Maybe they don't think they're in Europe, but they would most certainly think they're in Asia. And as long as China's junior partner in Eurasia is tying up the West, draining its resources, and presenting a threat to the alliance and maintaining alliance structure as a key national interest too, then we can't do that effectively. You mentioned Asia. Here is another argument that I hear, and I'm slightly exaggerating this for effect. I've heard it said that the Russians are tying down and draining the West in Ukraine, and that this is limiting our readiness and the resources that would be available should the Chinese invade Taiwan. That we're focused, for all the right reasons, because we care about who is right and who is wrong, on Ukraine and Russia, when the real threat to the United States, the threat that could cause a world war, is in the Pacific, and that we're blind to it. Is that wrong? It is not wrong. It's just incomplete. China, I believe, is one of our primary, if not the foremost, geostrategic threat we face in this century. But that doesn't mean it's the most dangerous right this second. Russia is far more risk-prone. It has demonstrated this time and time again. It is far more likely to hazard its way into a conflagration. Uh, by virtue of its willingness to court risk. China has a different perception. Maybe that's changing, but right now it has a dis different perception of its rise and therefore its window to act and secure its interests in its region. And I'm also inclined to take the word of the Taiwanese when it comes to the threat posed to Taiwan. They're very keen to see the West prosecute to the degree it can and support uh, Ukraine's effort to maintain its own defense a lot of uh, the states, including Taiwan in the periphery of China, who have balanced against its rise by aligning themselves with the United States, Vietnam, uh, Malaysia, the Philippines to a lesser degree, and certainly Japan and South Korea, all of them have a vested interest in seeing um, Russia's effort at a land grab fail to demonstrate that a land grab fails, which is precisely what China's envisioning. So China's watching what happens in Ukraine and will calculate its likelihood of success based upon that? We'll take its cues, most certainly. And to the extent that we 
we understand what the thinking is inside the Chinese Communist Party perhaps already has. Um, there's certainly some indications that the failure of this invasion to proceed in the way that just about every Western analyst thought it would, that Russia would simply roll over Kyiv, functionally occupy the country, if not bifurcate it, and, and replace the regime in Kyiv with some puppet state. That's precisely what it wants to engineer in Taiwan. And Taiwan's a much more complicated operation. It involves a, a significant marine operation, a, a, a sea landing, and then ferrying troops into airports um, via an air corridor. And this is not a complicated thing. And the Taiwanese are not are, are very capable and very well armed. Should perhaps be more well armed. But the idea here that this isn't going to be that this is not a harder target than Kiev is is than Ukraine rather is I think incorrect. And the Chinese most certainly know that. So the harder target, the harder that we can make Ukraine a, a target, the harder by proxy you can make Taiwan, or at least make the Chinese consider their options and consider the prospect of a prolonged conflict that doesn't end in a uh, in a definitive um, conclusion in, in support of Beijing's objectives. How do you think of zero tolerance? You hear people say that we simply cannot allow any hostile power to invade a neighbor in the way that Russia has, and that we learned this from World War II. That's usually the analogy that is drawn. But in the 1950s, the United States did sit back on occasion and watch an invasion and do nothing. For example, the Soviet Union invaded Hungary and Eisenhower let it go. In other circumstances, we thought it was imperative, as in Vietnam, to get involved. Are there any circumstances in which Russia could invade another country and we should sit back and say, you know what, that's not our problem? Well, it was certainly determined not to be in our sphere uh, in the 1950s. And the fear was that the Soviet Union would invade Hungary in 56 and the rest of the Warsaw Pact would fall in line and become captive nations. And they did. The fear in Vietnam was that there would be a domino effect in Southeast Asia if the communists took over all of Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos fell. So it's not wrong. It's just simply the fact and, and, a, and we need merely determine the degree to which we're willing to accept spheres of influence that lock us out of a particular region or a particular maritime trade route for perhaps a, a span of several years or maybe in perpetuity. But that's what's at issue, is the free navigation of trade lanes and the, and the maintenance of the global economy, which has only existed since 1991. Between 1914 and 1991, there was no global economy. This is not something that is preordained, uh, and it's something that requires quite a lot of maintenance. And if you believe, as I do, that the relative peace, peace, I'm sorry, an absolute prosperity that has followed the collapse of uh, Soviet communism as an alternative theory of social organization, then maintaining that takes work. Trimming back the, uh, the return of the jungle, in Fred Kagan's words, is an act of hygiene. How far would you go? You pushed back against the idea that Zelensky was asking for American troops. You're right. That clip was edited. It was misunderstood, willfully or not, by those who posted it and reacted to it. 
But if the Ukrainians were to collapse, there would be a question before us. At that point, sending money wouldn't be enough. Then what happens? That's an extremely valid fear and <clears throat> one that I share. Uh, I think perhaps a more immediate fear arises from the prospect. So far, the West has been stalwart in this, but they could go weak-kneed. And a third party, maybe China or a Chinese proxy, could intervene and establish some sort of terms that would constitute peace, which Moscow would signal that it would be willing to accept. And then you'd have a lot of pressure, perhaps on Kyiv from its erstwhile allies in the West, to acquiesce to something resembling a ceasefire, an armistice, perhaps along with the amount of territory that Russia currently occupies in Ukraine in its hands. And we'd have something like a frozen conflict um, in Ukraine. And frozen conflicts don't stay frozen. Russia thaws them out when it wants to destabilize a particular region um, for whatever ends that it seeks to meet. And it does this with some regularity. And while that might be acceptable, that terms of that peace might be acceptable to us, it certainly wouldn't be to Ukrainians. I don't believe that the fight fighting would cease even if the government in Kyiv said stop fighting. In fact, the, the stability of the Zelensky government would be in doubt because there is such almost universal consensus against the idea of some sort of a peace with Russia in Ukraine in exchange for land of any kind. There's just no appetite for it. So the, I don't think the fighting would stop inside Ukraine. And I also wonder how our allies on the frontier would react. I don't know if that peace would be acceptable to Poland or the Baltic states. And perhaps they would put pressure on the alliance or maybe even take matters into their own hands, which would, again, which would, A, destabilize um, the situation in Ukraine, and B, destabilize the alliance, which is precisely Moscow's foremost objective. Um, it would achieve that by other means, which would be nothing short of a loss for the West in this conflict. Let me ask you a question that is more domestic in nature, although it's directly tied to foreign policy. The public, in my estimation, is still skeptical of foreign entanglements. The dovish candidate has won the majority of the last few presidential elections. I don't count 2020 because I think that was a referendum on Donald Trump as a person. But if you go back in time, in 2016, Trump was more dovish than Hillary. 2012, Obama. 2008, Obama. 2004 is an exception, but 2000 is not. George W. Bush said that he was opposed to nation building and so forth. It was 9-11 that changed his mind on that. I think, if anything... The fact that Bush changed his mind and we ended up fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan has made the public much more skeptical of our getting involved in wars. And yet, we have a belligerent Russia that has invaded Ukraine. And many experts I know are extremely worried that China is going to invade Taiwan. Do you worry that if China did invade Taiwan... The majority of Americans would say, not our problem, too far away. Well, perhaps, but not in the very near term. The shock of it, I think, does a lot of the work. 
And let's, you know, go back in that record. Yes, George W. Bush ran on a humbler American foreign policy. And 9-11 intervened. And Iraq intervened. Obama ran on a humbler American foreign policy. And then Libya intervened. And then ISIS intervened. And then Syria almost intervened. But it really intervened for Donald Trump. And then Biden has Ukraine. All of these have, to the, with the exception of Libya, which I don't think there was a material national interest at stake, all of them have material national interests at stake. But they were also really compelling stories. They were powerful stories. Yes, American voters do not vote on foreign policy unless foreign policy has produced a national humiliation abroad or Americans coming home in body bags. That's really the only things they vote on when it comes to foreign policy. But that doesn't describe how they view the conduct of American foreign policy when it comes to supporting or opposing other nations' acts of defense of their own national sovereignty or otherwise. And they all have a lot to do with how the America sees itself. Ukraine is an incredibly powerful story for a variety of reasons. It's a colonial war. Americans have in their DNA anti-colonial wars. Uh, it's an underdog story. Americans love an underdog story. These are all powerful inducements that I don't think an American on the street who would be able to articulate what our grand strategic national interests are in material terms would instantly recognize and be able to reproduce for you. And it's galvanizing and it moves armies. So I wouldn't sacrifice the power of the story and cede it, frankly, to the left and opponents of this war, who I believe are also in desperate search of some sort of a compelling narrative. All right, last question. As you look at the world right now, are you optimistic that the United States will remain the greatest superpower, that the open trade and open sea lanes that you mentioned will persist, that the Anglo-American dominance that started with the victory at the Battle of Waterloo continued through the end of the Second World War and persists to this day will continue to obtain? Or do you see decline and chaos in our future? I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, I think we will be the authors of our own destruction, if that be our lot, to uh, paraphrase Lincoln. There will be challenges. The return of great power conflict is not something that should surprise anybody. It's been looming on the horizon since the late 1990s. Uh, and in material terms, the West is very much poised to meet that threat if they can mobilize uh, in defense of their own interests. If we were to shirk that duty and withdraw from our responsibilities abroad because it would be politically convenient or politically palatable, salient, I don't know, um, it's part of our history. It's definitely something that we are keen to do. We do also have in our DNA this, this misapprehension that our two oceans protect us. But that's a uniquely American thing, too. It's not going away. But in the near term, I do think that there is appetite for confronting challenges to American supremacy, American hegemony, because I do think there's, well, some articulate alternative visions of it. I do think American hegemony is preferable to any feasible alternative. If you believe that the American-led global order is backed by hard power. Hard power guarantees and underwrites it. And all the trappings of international institutions and soft power and what have you exist only because they are underwritten by American hard power. 
then you have to assume that American hard power will not be replaced by a consortium of nations engaged in some sort of a, of a of talk shop in Brussels, that it will come from some other source of hard power. And the alternatives to that are, for example, a rising China. And do we think that a rising China would see to our national interests? I don't. I don't think most Americans would instinctually. I think they would need to be conditioned into that. And that's a hard slog. Somebody would have to begin that job today in order to see results several years from now. And I don't detect much interest in that. Doesn't mean it won't materialize in the future, but I just don't see it right now. All right, Noah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Charlie. Appreciate it. And that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to you for listening. Thank you to Noah Rothman for joining me and answering my questions. This was episode 20, and we'll see you next week.